The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. We'll turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm thankful to have opportunities to, to walk through this, this glorious book with you and so thankful for the messages in Exodus and in Galatians recently as we've thought about what it means to be a slave of Christ, uh, that we are truly set free from bondage to sin and to self and to the flesh and to Satan and we are free to, to live for Christ, to, to breathe the free air of grace and His mercy toward us. And so I'm thankful to kind of key off of some of those same themes as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1 and consider some sweet truths found here. So would you read along with me 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1, actually starting in chapter 1 verse 25 and then we'll read 2, 1 to 3. Take your copy of God's word and follow along with me as we read. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. May the Lord... Grant us to not only taste and to see, but to drink deeply from this passage that would be strengthened in our hearts and that we would grow up into salvation that is in Christ. That is His desire for us. As I was thinking about growth this week in this passage, I I went back, I, I was drawn back to my early years as a believer and in my office just up on my, kind of at the corner of my bookshelf there, that I have all of my journals from when I was a, a younger man, a teenager and in my 20s. I don't know if you keep a journal. I did. I have kind of on and off over the years. And, and I pulled it down and I started thumbing through what I thought was about when I was roughly about 19 years old, but I realized I was a little, young, a little bit younger than that. And nothing that I had written in those journals was really profound. It wasn't all that uh, gripping or compelling. It was actually maybe a little, little embarrassing. In fact, I read one of those journal entries out, out loud to a friend in my office this week, and we kind of chuckled a little bit. But, but at least what struck me about what I was reading there was that God was working in my life as a young man. He was doing things in my heart. He was, he was helping me to fight and to root out sin in my heart and my life that, that I, I had become fed up with by his grace. I, I didn't want to live in old patterns of sin anymore. I wanted to put to death selfishness and lust and envy and pride. I saw those things in me and I wanted to see God root those out of my heart. But what can, an, what can a teenager accomplish for the glory of God? I was a teenager, and I wanted God to, to use my life to bring glory to himself. But maybe you're a teenager in this new year, and, and you hear people talking about New Year's resolutions and goals and all of that. What can a teenager accomplish for the glory of God? Maybe you remember when you were 18 or 19, or you were a young believer, whenever that was, and I realize not everyone can say that, <clears throat> that their teenage years were some of the sweetest and best years of their life. But by God's grace, when he drew me to himself, they were sweet years. And I'd encourage you maybe in, this early, in, in the early parts of this new year to think back, to, to look back on your young life as a believer and to give thanks to God, to give him thanks for what he's done in your life. Those are some of the best years of my life, some of the most exciting, some of my sweetest memories. I'm on Facebook, and I know that kind of, you know, I'm not on Instagram, so that kind of dates me a little bit, but there's this thing on Facebook. It pulls up your memories, and it shares memories from years past, and I'm, I'm old enough that I've been on Facebook kind of since the beginning, and so 15, 16 years ago, memories will pop up, and, and typically, the memories are from times that I was at youth group or at camp or going on a missions trip or with friends at Starbucks studying for finals or whatever it was, but 
But those were some of my sweetest, most precious memories because God was doing work in my life. God drew me to himself by his grace. And, and I remember in high school, for the very first time, I heard a sermon. I heard about this guy named Jonathan Edwards. I'd never heard of him before. In fact, the first time I heard about Jonathan Edwards was in high school, actually in a high school history class. We're reading in a, in a textbook, and I, maybe I'd heard of him before, but the first time his life really struck me was in my, my, my secular school and in a history textbook reading about uh, U.S. history. And there's one sermon that I read of his, and maybe you can guess what it was that was in the textbook. Any, any guesses? Yeah, you got it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. The whole text of the sermon was there, and the conclusion of it was, this man was just this kind of fanatical Christian. He was angry. I mean, listen to this sermon. Man, who would want to sit under that kind of preaching? Christianity is just a bunch of stiffs, and they're no fun. But I remember reading that sermon and just thinking, this is amazing. This is the best thing I've ever heard. And he was 38 when he preached that powerful sermon just two years older than I am now, and, and in many ways a very young man. He lived till he was, I think, only 56 years old, and so halfway through his life he had preached this sermon that, that kind of put him on the map in terms of great preachers. But as I, as I think about Edward's life today, and as I read through his resolutions, and if you've never read those, just Google uh, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Read one of them a, a week or one of them a day and, and be, be encouraged. And there was a time in my life where I would read Edward's resolutions and I would just feel like I got smacked over the head by a two by four. Like, man, I am such a loser Christian. I, I'll, I could never be like this. Who could ever be as mature as this man? And, and, and here's the best part. He was 19 when he wrote them, most of them at least. But what strikes me at, at this point in my life about Edward's resolutions, and I'm going to read a couple of them to you in a moment here. Is not how many there are or how, or how bold even they were or how brave they were. But what was really, what strikes me now is what was at the heart of them. The resolutions are, are not the journal entries of some super spiritual Christian superhero, but they're the desires of an earnest believer. The prayers of an earnest believer a believer who says, this is my earnest plea, more love to Christ. More love for you, O Christ. They're the desires of a, of a person who, are, who is gripped and enthralled by the beauty and the glory and the power and the fear of God and the purposes of God. They're the Prayers of a man who saw the glory of God, not only in the world around him, but in the pages of Scripture. And he said, more love to thee, O Christ. Let me read just a few of them for you as they relate to our text this morning. I believe this is number 38. He says this, resolved, resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily constantly and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. In other words, I want to grow in my knowledge of the word of the scriptures as I read them and as I study them. You want it to grow in, in, a, in a knowledge, a deep love, a deep wisdom so that he could live for the glory of God as he studied the scriptures. Not just in an academic way, but in a, at a heart level. And then he says this, resolved to strive to my utmost every week. To be brought higher in religion. And to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. I just find that so helpful. Isn't that what you want? You want to, to grow in your love for the Lord and, your, and your, your, your love for His commands, your delight in Him, your joy in following Him week by week. Sometimes it's hard for us to measure our spiritual growth because all we see is our sin and, and our struggle with sin. or We're discouraged. 
Resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Then this resolved to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin, to confess those things. And if it be what concerns religion, also to confess the whole case to God and implore needed help. That's what we need. To confess our sins to God or weaknesses to God as it concerns our our relationship to God and to confess the whole thing to God and deplore help as needed to God and to others. And my prayer for us is this, that may may God grant us the resolve of a 19-year-old Jonathan Edwards to do the same. If you're 19 or you're 18 or you're 58 or 88, May this be your kind of prayer to grant us that same, the same kind of resolve that a young man had a couple, a couple of hundred years ago who died as a, as a young pastor seeking to live each and every day for the glory of God. He desired to grow. He desired to see progress in his love for the Lord and his holiness in God's glory being better displayed day by day in his life. And that that is the desire of of an everyday Christian, of, of every Christian like you and I. Because as believers, we care about growth, not because we want other people to be impressed by us, but because what Christ purchased in his death and resurrection is not the the possibility or the probability of his people to be transformed into his likeness, but the actuality of it. That it's not optional, but it is normal, and it is essential, and it is inevitable. And the reason that it matters is because as we grow in Christ's likeness, God gets the attention and the praise and the glory that he deserves, and that's the point of growth. Spiritual growth, the, the goal of it, is all, of it all is that God would be magnified in our lives, in every area of our lives. We don't want to get rich. We don't grow because we want to impress people or, or because we want earthly success or an early retirement. No, if you're a believer, you want to grow like Peter is calling us to here because you are a servant of the King of Kings. And you want to be the sharpest tool in his hand that you can be mentally, physically, spiritually for his service. And what's helpful about Edwards' resolutions is that Edwards, who only lived till he was 56 years old, he wanted to grow as a believer. He wasn't writing these things to post on a blog post somewhere or to preach at a pastor's conference or anything like that. He wanted to grow. Sometimes it's helpful to write down your goals in spiritual growth. Not to share with other people necessarily. You don't have to do that. But do we, church, do we have a sense in our own lives of how God wants to grow us? What sins He wants us to to get to work mortifying, killing in our lives? Edwards wanted to grow as a believer. He understood that Jesus had purchased him from the grip of sin and Satan and set him free from following the course of this world. That, he, that, that Christ had brought him through the narrow gate and set him on the path to glory. And what it means to grow spiritually is to desire God to get more and more glory, as we've said, from your life. As we submit to him, like Edward said, day by day, week by week, as his servants. And so what I want us to see from this text this morning, I think what Peter is getting at is that if we are those who have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, and if we call him our father, as chapter 1 says, and we call ourselves his children, that we don't want to remain spiritual infants, but we want to grow. We want to grow. We want to see progress in the faith because Christ is worthy of it. One characteristic of of all children, all children are unique. They're all different. They have different personalities. They have different interests and all of that. But one characteristic of all children 
is that they grow. They don't stay children forever. They don't remain children. No child remains a child. And for the child of God, it's the same. God, our Father, places in His children a desire to grow up in Christ-likeness. They want to mature. And just like growth is absolute for a child born of the flesh, so, so a child born of the Spirit of God, as Peter says, will be caused to grow up into salvation. In other words, salvation produces growth, spiritual growth, spiritual progress, sanctification, transformation, godliness, growth in godliness and and purity. Just like you you stood with your back against the doorpost in your parents' home growing up and each year they, they marked out where you were, God intends to grow us spiritually. He intends for there to be markers in our lives that show that we are growing in Christ-likeness, that we are maturing. Because more growth means more glory to God. And that's the goal of growth. But sadly, there are many who call themselves believers who have settled in their minds that growth just isn't either a priority or, or maybe even worse, that it isn't even possible. I've been kind of stuck in this rut for 10 years and and nothing seems to be changing. But what Peter wants to show you from this text is the answer to to help you get out of the rut, to to help your, your wheels quit spinning and to get some traction, to get some movement, to get some motion. Many believers think that, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm just kind of stuck here. Spinning my spiritual wheels, I'll never change. My my growth is just kind of stunted, and I just need to kind of be okay with that and just kind of coast and cruise till the end. But the sad tragedy is that they're plagued with doubts and fears and discouragements and insecurity that doesn't have to be. They can enjoy the joy and hope and and confidence and assurance that Christ provides if they will only Come to him and plead for it. Many think that they could never become more zealous for God or more fervent in their prayers or more delighted in God. And one thing that I'm reminded of every new year is that each and every day his mercies are new and we can come to him and say, Lord, would you do a work in me that would result in more glory to yourself regardless of my circumstances in this new year? Whether things are smooth and, and fine and happy and sweet or whether you take me through a deep, dark valley. Whatever it takes, I want you to be glorified in my life because Christ is worthy of it. He's worthy of a transformed life day by day. We can grow hungrier for the Lord, for fellowship with Christ. We can love His church more. We can be more open with believers about our sin struggles. We can be more bold with the gospel. We can be more hopeful and constant in our joy. And the reason is because what Christ commands and that you crave after Him, He gives you the resources, believer, to do. And so there must be a way. There must be a way to grow. And there is. Peter helps us with that today. And so what I want to do is I want to just give you 20 seconds before the Lord, just cry out to the Lord and pray something like this. Lord, would you help me believe and live this text? Would you help me to believe that what you say in this text is possible, it is for me, it is for us as a church, and that what you command, you can supply? And ask Him to transform you, to grow you, to cause you to grow in ways that you have never grown in this new year. Plead with Him right now to do that. Let's, let's take a few moments just to do that.
Amen. Lord, help us to believe and live this text. Well, our, our, our proposition or kind of our, our main, our big idea for this morning is this, that a Christian's new life is marked by new cravings. And in this passage, in light of God's powerful word, uh, to make and to give life, Peter not only commands our cravings, God through Peter not only commands our cravings, but he directs our hearts so that we will grow in our spiritual lives. He gives us the answers for how we might see growth in our lives, which is exactly God's plan. Or another way to say that is for our sanctification, for our maturity, for our growth in in godliness. Is that what you want? And I hope you prayed to the Lord. I hope you cried out to the Lord because that is, if nothing else, that is the answer to spiritual growth is to say, Lord, would you cause me to grow? Would you cause me to do what this text says? Would you bring it about in me? Would you help me to be like a newborn infant and long for the pure spiritual milk that I may grow up into my salvation? That is the prayer of a struggling believer. And that, that, is, that is, at a basic level, the answer to our spiritual growth, that we would plead with the Lord, pray to him, God, would you do this in me? And so I pray that you did that. And, and the first of these three things that Peter points out for our spiritual growth that, that help us get going and make progress in our faith, the first issue that he addresses is that we must lay aside church-killing sins or community-killing sins. Point number one, lay aside community-killing sins. He's just said, Peter has just said in the text before this, that the word of God which abides forever is the thing that produces spiritual life. It is the thing that causes, that that brings about the new birth. The spirit of God takes the word of God, which is the gospel that was preached to you, the good news of redemption that is for all men. He takes that gospel, he transforms your heart and your desires and your life. And the fruit that he produces is abiding and it is ongoing and it'll, it'll continue on until eternal life because there we will continue to grow in love day by day by day, decade after decade, millennia after millennia in love for Christ. All as a result of this initial work of the word of God in us. And then without skipping a beat in the original text, there's no chapters, there's no verses, just an ongoing sentence here. He says, this is the word of, this, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If the good news has been preached to you and you have been drawn to the Savior, church, first Step of growth in the believer's life is to put away sin. Put away community killing sins. Remember what Edward said, resolve to confess frankly to myself and all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin, and implore needed help. We have sin. You have sin in your heart. There's sins that maybe only a couple of people in your life see because in your home you struggle with those more than in any, in any other place. Or maybe you're one who, who really wears their heart on their sleeves and so it's, it's more evident and obvious to all what your sins are and I, I kind of feel like that way myself. And I'm thankful for that. And really I want that more and more. We all, Peter says, have sins that must be killed in our hearts. And if the word of God has produced new life in us, there will be a pattern of, in the believers, in the community of faith, a seriousness about sin that is undeniable. Peter here is calling these elect believers to do something impossible without the miracle of verses 22 to 25. That is the new birth. And, he, and here's, the, here's the first thing that we need to say. If you are not in Christ, if you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus and you cannot say that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, then don't, then don't read verse 1 of chapter 2. Just go back to verses 22 to 25 and plead with the Lord to open your eyes to see that you need a Savior. That you are a slave to your sin. And that apart from Christ, you will be condemned in your sin. You will be judged by the judge of all the earth one day, either when you die and stand before him or when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Confess that your soul is not pure, verse 22. 
that you do not have sincere brotherly love, but that you are plagued and, 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 and full of selfishness. And that you need new life. Would you do that even now? I plead with you. But if you are in Christ, the impossible has been achieved. You have been made alive. You have been born anew spiritually. And then Peter says, therefore. So if that is true, in verse 1 of chapter 2, if that is true, as we kind of link back to those verses, Here is the effect of the new birth. The first effect that Peter describes is that you and I as the community of God will be striving to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. As we think about spiritual growth, these are the ones that Peter lists as the sins that kill the growth of the church. And so what are these sins, church? What are they? If you have been born again passively, that is, Christ caused something to happen to you. You, you were brought to life. You were, new life was brought about within you. And now you have been given a new heart and a new life with new desires such that you can actually fulfill and obey the commands of God by the Spirit of God. What, is, what are these sins that we are to put away so that we might see the bride of Christ mature and be pure and Glorious in Christ's eyes. What are these sins that kill fellowship and unity and stunt growth? It's fascinating to me that what Peter doesn't mention here is things like theft or sexual immorality or murder. None of those things are mentioned but there are, there are other sins. Malice, it, which is a disposition of the heart that, that wants to see people hurt. The kind of wickedness that is, that is so destructive to sincere brotherly love that if left hanging about in our midst brings sickness disease, as a disease in the community of God. Malice is kind of this overall characteristic that that really kind of leads into these others here, but a disposition of the heart that that wants to see people hurt, which you you almost kind of step back from that and say, Peter, Peter, how could you say that? How could you possibly say that believers would struggle with malice? But I know you because I know me. And there are times in, in deep, dark moments of my wickedness, in, in, in my fight against the flesh as the Spirit is waging war against my flesh, that there's a little bit of satisfaction that comes when someone who you're really bugged with, when they hurt. I know that you've wrestled with it. I know you've seen that, that conflict in your soul. And what Peter says is you must kill that. For the glory of God. Because Christ was killed to free you from it. To set you free to live differently. You must identify that wicked malice in your heart. That desires to see hurt in people. With either word or deed. And see it put to death. That's the first kind of maliciousness but the, but the second one that kind of flows out of that is deceit that Peter says put away if you want to see the church grow and you want to see yourself grow in joy and love for Christ and in the gospel put away malice and deceit or, or maybe you have a translation that, that renders that guile originally it meant to, to bait or to snare someone and so it came to mean deceit Put away deceit. It means to to tell someone something that that isn't true. And I know you because I know me. And it doesn't usually sound like this. Uh, Two plus two is five. Just Just a blatant lie, a blatant deception. But it comes with a little bit of a twist. We, we tell the truth but kind of slant or, or we leave out some details that would be really important 
or that, that wouldn't totally indict us for having done or not done something that we should have. I've been guilty of that. It means to tell someone something that isn't true to, to gain an advantage over them. It involves having ulterior motives in your communication. Oh, that the Lord would root out from our midst deceit. Seeking to gain advantage over one another. Church, is that what you want? Do you want to see that in your life? Do you want to see that in, in our church family? That deceitfulness would be destroyed? That should be a goal of ours in this new year as a church, that we would be truth tellers, that we would speak the truth in love. But then Peter says the next one, hypocrisies. What, what are, what's the next kind of malnourishment or, or poison of sin that, that tears at the fabric of the church that stunts our growth? First, he's, next he says hypocrisies. And it's fascinating that he says hypocrisies, plural. And, I, implying that there are multiple, there are many ways that we can be hypocritical. A fear of being known or, or having our insecurities exposed and a sense of not liking what we see about ourselves in the mirror and so we, we, we present ourselves in a different light. Saying that we are something when we are something different. When we're one thing at church on Sunday or in public but at home on our own, we are something very different. Our prayer is that God would cause us to be people of integrity. For elders, we, we are to be men who are above reproach, not perfect, but who are not hypocritical, characterized by hypocrisies. But that's not just for elders. That is for God's people. That is for the church. And so as you read this, uh, it's a little bit of a, a spiritual two-by-four, right? Across the face uh, of, of your soul. But it's also a prayer of ours to say, Lord, make us people of integrity. Help us to, to be the kind of people who, who speak in, in private with individuals in the same kinds of way that we speak in a group. Help us to not be hypocritical, Lord. Help us to be people of the truth who are characterized by truth even to our own pain. Not, not in a hurtful way, but so honest and so uh, full of integrity that we're seen for who we really are and we're not afraid to, to say who we really are and what our weaknesses really are. Next he says envyings. Envyings, again another plural here. We're to put aside hypocrisies and, and envyings. And it refers to an attitude behind kind of the deceit and hypocrisy that came before. You think about the, the heart of hypocrisy or, or being deceitful. It's, it's really because you want something or want to be seen as something that you aren't. Being jealous of, of another person or longing to have something that you don't have. Envy desires privilege that belongs to another. They have it, and you don't, and so you hate them for it. And envying often works its way out in all kinds of slanderings, as Peter says. We're to put away hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That word means to, to speak against someone, against them, or, or down to them, or with force toward them in a, in a hurtful way. And, and of course, that goes with deceit. The slanderer says nice things to the person's face, but disparaging critical things behind his back. Do we do that? Do you do that? I've got to say, as a pastor, people often feel really free to say things to me about other people. 
And, and it can be rather discouraging. But here's the thing. I know you because I know me. And, and I've done the same thing. And I've had to have people call me out and say, wait a second. Is that the truth? Is that exactly how that went? Have you had that conversation with that brother or sister before saying this to me? Church, we've got to get good at following Matthew 18. We've got to get really good at when we have an offense against a brother that we go to them and we say, brother, sister, please, I don't want there to be any conflict or any sin or any division between us. Can we work on this thing? Can we work on this conflict together? Before you ever go to another person in the world, you follow that because Christ gets glory when we don't slander one another, when we don't gossip. So if you're like me, our plea to the Lord is, please God, help me. Would you grow me in this? Would you cause me to make progress in this this year for your glory? Christ died to purchase your victory and freedom over that sin. Not perfection, but growth in godliness. And so what's Peter's major concern here as we think about these sins? Well, these sins and a hundred others undealt with, they, they kill, they, they chip away at our unity and our fellowship, our joy in our relationships, our trust, our compassion for one another. They hinder our advance and growth in the knowledge of God and in His Word and immaturity. John Owen said, be killing sin, one of a great, the great Puritan pastors, or, or sin will be killing you. Or you could put it another way, be killing sin or sin will be killing your church. And so brothers and sisters, what does is, what is Peter call us to? If we are those who have been transformed by the good news that was preached to us in chapter 1, verse 25, lay aside sin that destroys love and affection and unity in the church. And then what does he say? Verse 2. Instead of that, if the gospel is good news to you, don't go on in the sin that, that chips away at the foundation of the church, love and unity in Christ. Instead, like a newborn infant, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. If these things hinder growth, if they stunt growth, if they put, put a damper on our spiritual growth, the remedy is to be like a newborn infant who longs for pure spiritual milk. And you don't need me to describe really any of that to understand the picture, do you? You, you know what that is. Peter says, kill the sin and cling to something greater. Kill the sin and crave after the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His goodness, all the pure spiritual milk that comes in the gospel, which is the word that was preached to you, which is Christ Himself. And that leads us to point number two. Long after the soul-satisfying word of God. Long after the soul-satisfying word in verses two to three. The, the remedy, here's the thing, the remedy for our, the sins that, that kill the community of God is to drink, drink, drink of the Lord's goodness and His kindness. I heard a friend this, this weekend speaking about applying the gospel, applying the truths of the gospel to, to the circumstances of life. That's how we drink, drink, drink deeply of the goodness of God. We look to the gospel. We look to the good news of salvation and we say, God, you are the creator. You're the maker of everything. I, I worship you. I belong to you. That's how you drink deeply of the pure spiritual milk. But the world has fallen into sin because of rebellion against you. And Lord, I'm a rebel on my own. Would you... By your grace, as, as you've saved me from being a rebel, would you sanctify me? Would you make me to be the kind of person that you created me to be when you created Adam and Eve? Would you g g cause me to be godly and growing? 
And Jesus is coming again. Jesus came into the world one time to save sinners, and he's coming again to deliver his people from wrath and from judgment. Drink deeply of those gospel truths day by day, church. If you're ever bored of your Bible reading, if you're ever bored of spiritual things, rehearse the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of the good things of redemption. That's part of how we drink deeply of the goodness of God. Look again at verse 2. Like a newborn infant, long for or crave after the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And really here's the main kind of word or verb in this text. It's the central admonition of this text. It is crave or long Crave after the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up. Okay, so our, our desire to, to be deceptive. We, we understand that we don't want to be deceitful anymore. We don't want to be hypocritical. We don't want to be envying. We don't want to be slandering. That, that's gone in terms of that being our overarching theme in life. The power of those things is, is broken And now, how do we make progress? Peter says, crave after pure spiritual milk. That's the remedy for growth. The remedy for stunted growth is the word of the gospel, the pure spiritual milk. Like newborn infants, long for it. And and here's the main strategy for killing the sins in verse 1. It's to satisfy your soul with the milk of the Lord's kindness. You know, here's a part of the picture. Milk to an infant is not like, eh, it's fine, it's okay. You know, I wish, I really wish I had a steak dinner. No, an infant says, this is the best, this is what I want, this is all I need, and I want it. And they cry out for it, and they, they long for it, and they are satisfied in it. And so the picture here is that what God offers to us in the gospel and in his word, it is satisfying. And so Peter says, long for it, crave for it. It's an imperative. You must do this thing right now. Go after it. Seek after it. It, it, it. The term signifies an intense, ever-recurring desire. It's the kind of desire that Old Testament believers were to have for God himself, like in Psalm 42. You remember? Listen to these words. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And when shall I come and appear before God? Let me read that again. And as I read it, would you pray that God would cause it to be so? As a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Pray that to the Lord. That your soul would thirst for Him. The the living God. That you like a deer would pant like flowing streams after God. Like that you like a baby would long for his pure spiritual milk. He commands that we crave. And what is this milk? Let's, let's look at that some more. We know that that's the, that's the natural diet of infants. They don't simply desire it, but they're drawn with a powerful uh, instinctive urge to have it for bodily growth. They don't know that they're growing, right? They just know that they want milk. Now, we as believers, right, we can kind of fill that illustration out. Not only do we need it, but we crave it because we want to grow. We want to grow as believers. And this is exactly what Peter is saying. If you're a believer, you have a desire to grow. Because like John says, all of God's commands are good. They are not a burden to us. And so when we read, crave after pure spiritual milk, we say what? Yes, I want what you say. I want to do what you say. This is the believer's desire. 
And there is an urgency that we see in this and we respond by saying, yes, Lord, help me, grow me, make it so. And this is how believers grow, by feeding their appetites, feeding right appetites and starving and killing old appetites. And we do that by identifying sin in our life and by confessing it and forsaking it and running to the cross and saying, Lord, would you transform me by the work of your cross? And look at what he says. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Or in other words, you could say, in order that you may grow up into salvation. Or in order that you should be caused to grow. In other words, what Peter is saying here, weary, beleaguered believer, is that growth is possible. He's giving the result here. In order that you should be caused to grow. And what's really interesting is that it's a passive verb. That to grow is is not something that you do on your own, but it happens to you. And you participate in it by obeying the command to crave and to plead with the Lord to give you desires that are fitting and right and good. And then what does he do? He answers that prayer. He says, yes, I will answer that prayer for your desire to grow. And I will cause you to grow up into this salvation that I have purchased for you. That I long to to see magnified in your life for my glory. That the world may see that there is a God in heaven who is powerful and mighty to save. That's the purpose. Now, what Peter is not saying here is that they were spiritual babies, right? They weren't immature believers. That's not the argument that, that Peter's making. Now, that, that idea of milk is used in other places to describe, hey, you should be going from milk to meat, right? Describing immature believers needing to become strong, mature believers. But what Peter's describing here is the life of mature believers who long for spiritual nourishment day by day, week by week, decade by decade, for their whole lives because this is what God has designed in saving them. And the milk, the need for milk is is a natural instinct for a baby and it signals the desire for nourishment that will lead to growth. And once we see our need for God's word and begin to find nourishment in it, and in Christ and in the gospel, like verse 25 of chapter 1 described, our spiritual appetites, believers, church, will increase. And we will start to mature. And so the question is, how is your desire, and Phil asked this last week, and it's right to ask it again, how strong is your desire for the word? Or maybe ask it another way. Do you see in your life an increasing love and a desire to know God in his word? And to obey his word. To say to the Lord, whatever you say, Lord, I will do it. And I want to know more of your commands and your ways and your word. Because I love them. And I love you. And I want to do what you say. And so, there's a bit of a diagnostic thing that we need to do here are you born again in other words have you been made to crave after christ you must ask this question that is the most essential question to ask today do you have a life that has been transformed by the gospel have you been born anew and then caused to crave after christ himself after the gospel after this goodness that he supplies in christ Do you believe? Can you say, Jesus is Lord and I love him? And then, do you have a desire to grow for God's glory in your life? Do you have a desire to grow? Do you see that instead of, or do you see that instead of growing, you're actually listening to your flesh? And the the temptations of the enemy of your soul. If you see in your life and in God's word something that you ought to be doing and you don't have a desire to do that, 
you need to recognize that your flesh is fighting to keep you from it and you have an enemy of your soul who also does not want you to see that as a good thing. Do you see it? So if you do not have a desire for the word of God in your life and, and, and the, the goodness of the gospel to be transforming you, you do not have a desire to know God's word better, to know him better from the word, then you've got to see that there are two enemies that are fighting against you to keep you from the best thing that you could possibly have, which is God himself. And that is the flesh and the devil, who again is the enemy of your soul. And you've got to know, you must understand that apart from godliness that only Christ produces in salvation, apart from that, no one will, will see God. And again, that all points us back to the cross of Christ. All of that is fueled and motivated and energized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we cannot prize, we cannot grow up into something that we do not prize, and we cannot prize salvation if we do not possess Christ, and we cannot possess Christ if we do not see our need for a Savior. And so, taste and see, like the psalmist says, taste and see, and that Peter, like Peter says, that the Lord is good. See the sweetness of his patience and mercy towards you and set your appetites free to enjoy him by confessing sins that are keeping you back from going after him, from enjoying him. I was with a brother this, this week as he stopped by to, to give something to me and I asked him, how's your life group going? And he said, really hard, it's really difficult. And then he explained, you know, the difficulties of his life. And I said, thanks for sharing that with me. But I, I asked how your life group was going, not how your life is going. But when I said, how's your life group going? He thought, how's your life going? And he, and he just kind of shared the struggles of life that were really difficult and really hard and, and, and a, 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 a sincere struggle with sin and all of that. So he, he mistook what I said, but it, it led to a really sweet time where we got to pray for one another and confess our sins to one another because we want to grow. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we want more of Him and less of our old ways. We want to be satisfied in the one whom our soul was made to be satisfied in and to let Him rule our our growth. And so Peter says to us, Gold Country Baptist Church, no milk, no craving after the Lord, no treasuring Him in His Word, no growing depth and understanding of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of God, then there will be no growth. No milk, no growth. No milk, no enjoyment of His mercy. And and again, what we're saying is this is the milk, the gospel, the word that is preached, the, the Good news delivered to you. No milk, no enjoyment of his mercy and his kindness and his grace and assurance mediated through his word. Don't expect to grow if if you're not feeding your soul, believers, on Christ through his word. What what Peter calls the truth or the incorruptible seed or the living and enduring word of God or the, the word of the Lord that was proclaimed to you. The good news. That's all descriptions that Peter uses in the first chapter. Don't expect to grow if you're not feeding your soul on Christ through his word. So, wife of a husband who's not growing, how can you encourage your husband to grow? Grow. Crave after the pure spiritual milk. Get in God's word. Get uh, growing in your love for the Lord, living and obeying his truth. Husband who sees a need to lead his family spiritually, get into God's word and recognize that your flesh and the enemy of your soul are doing everything to keep you from it. And I feel that every day as well. Get on your knees and plead with the Lord. Lord, give me the desires that I lack. Give me the cravings that that I do not possess right now. Help me to see deceitfulness and envyings and sins that that are hindering me for what they are. They do not satisfy, but they're keeping me back from enjoying you. Oh Lord, would you please cause me to taste and see again that you are good. 
Oh, if the husbands, as husbands and fathers, we would plead every day to the Lord to give us that craving after Him. As young men in the church, as young women in the church, as married or single, if we would plead with the Lord. Dear older saint, if you would plead with the Lord, Lord, give me a desire for your word, for your, this pure spiritual milk until I go to be with you in glory so that you don't waste your last season of life. How pleased would the Lord be to answer that prayer? That's his desire. So look finally to the goodness of God. And we're going to look to the goodness of God in communion this morning. That will be a, a primary application of this last exhortation here. Look to the goodness of God. I want to read to you something about a song that we're going to sing in a moment. We're going to sing a song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Now, our Reformed Calvinistic inclinations might stop us in our tracks and go, wait a second, I have decided to follow Jesus? Jesus decided to, He chose me in order to follow Him. We don't decide to follow Jesus on our own, but get this. The author of that song knew that. He had right theology. He understood the doctrines of grace. He understood that it is the grace of God that draws sinners to themselves irresistibly. And there's nothing that a dead man can do to cause himself to live. But listen to this. The story of I have decided to follow Jesus is of a Christian in India who was told to recant his faith or to watch his wife die. And he stood firm and he watched the deaths of the people he loved most in this world as he saw them pierced by arrows and spears. He declared, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. That is the goodness of God on display. The goodness of God is not primarily displayed when our bank account is full, when our 401k is robust. The goodness of God is not primarily displayed when our circumstances are pleasant and good. The goodness of God is displayed when His people take hold of the sweetness of the gospel and say, I will die for this. It is that good. The goodness of God is displayed when God's people walk through the fiery trials of life in the face of death, the death of a loved one, of a child, of a parent, of great trial. And they say, Jesus is worth it. The goodness of God is seen when an American leaves behind the comforts of this life to go to another land the gospel is not known and they say Jesus is alive and he saves. The goodness of God is displayed in the believer's life. When through trial after trial they keep on trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he really lived and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he is coming again. The goodness of God is displayed when God's people wrap their arms around one another and help each other through those fiery trials. Look to the goodness of God. Don't look to your circumstances. Don't look to when you'll just have a little bit of relief from the pain because that may never come. Look to Christ. Look to Him. When you're awake at night from chronic pain, and you can't sleep because you're burdened for your children or for that loved one that doesn't know Christ. Look to Christ. Remember the goodness of God and cry out to God and plead with Him to satisfy your soul, to help you to hope and to trust in Him and flee to His Word. We have decided to follow Jesus. Not because He makes our circumstances better, because they may never actually get better but because Christ went to the cross, was slaughtered at the hands of 
wicked men to redeem sinners like us. Oh, church, don't downplay. Don't belittle the cross by saying, I can't grow. What Christ purchased is the inevitable, absolute progress of His people in godliness for His glory. Our very existence centers on the greatest work of greatest work in history, that is the cross. And God commands what is best and good and right. And what He commands is that we crave after Him in His Word day by day and see Him become more satisfying to our souls, a blessing to one another and to the world around us. And so may God throw away the idea that we can't grow, that we can't change, that we don't need to. And let's seek God with our whole heart by craving after Him, by going to His Word. Pick up this book and dive into it. Get someone to help you and hold you accountable that you might be satisfied in Christ more this year. Let's pray.